Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. Today, disturbing new evidence of potential genocide in Mariupol. Satellite images appear to show rows of mass graves. Russian soldiers are accused of burying the bodies of countless civilians, including women and children. There appear to be more than 200 new graves in these pictures. The mayor of Mariupol is calling it evidence of war crimes. We have around 20,000 dead civilian deaths in Mariupol, and these were people uh, who were buried by enemy shelling, by enemy bombardment, um, buried under the rubble. And um, at the moment, we are witnessing the enemy trying to hide the evidence of their crimes uh, using uh, the instrument of mass graves. Overnight in the east, heavy fighting reported in Donetsk and Luhansk. Evacuation attempts were disrupted by Russian shelling. The bombardment prevented a bus packed with evacuees from safely leaving town. In his nightly address, President Zelensky criticised Russia for rejecting an offer for an Easter truce. He says that reflects how the Kremlin treats the Christian faith. And amid the devastation, talk of keeping the economy afloat and rebuilding too. Ukraine's finance minister is in Washington, D.C. for talks. We discuss what the country needs, who he singles out for their ongoing support, and why Ukraine will never surrender. For the latest on the evacuation efforts, here's Matt Rivers. Well, Julia, we are outside of the train station here in Lviv, Ukraine, where right around now we're expecting a train uh, filled with people from Mariupol, the lucky few who have been able to get out. Uh, they are, will be coming here to either stay in Lviv or perhaps go across the border into Poland or other places around Europe. Each person will have an individual plan, of course. Uh, and that is the scene that we have been witnessing here in Lviv for weeks now. The difference now, though, is that the number of people coming out of Mariupol is just so much smaller than it needs to be. We've seen several straight days of humanitarian corridors, both yesterday and the day before, not produce the desired results with just a trickle. We're talking about dozens of people being able to leave Mariupol because the Ukrainians say the Russians have not respected ceasefires that would need to be in place for people to be evacuated uh, safely, despite the fact that Russia says that it will provide safe passage to anyone who wants to leave. That just is not the reality that we are seeing on the ground. And today, no evacuation corridors have been set up to give people an outlet to get out of Mariupol, including the people that are trapped inside that Avastol steel plant complex that has really become the center of Ukraine's resistance in the city of Mariupol. It was yesterday that a few hundred people tried to leave Mariupol and the Ukrainian deputy prime minister saying they couldn't even get on the bus that uh, was sent for them because of shelling that was right near the bus. Uh, so it's just simply not safe. Meanwhile, we continue to see increased fighting overnight with uh, intense fighting in the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, regional military officials there are saying that Russians 
uh, Russian forces are trying to push through those Ukrainian front lines. Still no clear advances for Russian troops, but the fighting is intensifying in the east, no question about that. And finally, Julia, we heard from a top Russian military official who said publicly that the second phase of this war includes not only trying to get complete control over the Donbass region in the east, but also control what he called southern Ukraine. That includes places like Mariupol, for example, whether that includes other places further west like Odessa. He did not clarify, uh, but we're getting further insight into the Russian military leadership thinking on the way this war is going to play out. Julia. Matt Rivers there. Now, many have evacuated, but many remain. And as fighting intensifies across the Donbass region, civilians are forced to hide in underground shelters, as Ben Wiedemann reports. Julia, Russian forces continue to try to seize control of the town of Rubizhne, which is about an hour and a half's drive east of here. But they're running into stiff resistance by the Ukrainian defenders. We were able to go to a vantage point overlooking the city and watched as artillery rounds fell on all parts. The northern part, which is controlled by the Russians, the southern part, which is controlled by Ukrainian forces. And in the southern part of Rubizhne, we found a small group of people trying to survive hiding under fire. And it begins again. Hell rains down. A dozen people are hiding in the basement of a bombed-out theater in the town of Rubizhne. Let it stop, O oh Lord, he says. Now there's incoming. A white flag hangs outside to no effect. The theater above has been bombed and bombed again and again. Yet they stay. Too poor, too old, too frightened to flee. Nina, 89 years old, has been here for five weeks. I want to go home, she says. I've suffered too much. I've seen the fire and the smoke. I've seen it all. I'm scared. Nina's plea, simple. Help us. Help us. Her daughter, Lyudmila, struggles to comfort her. We're praying to God to stop it, she says, to hear us. Ina says, I have nowhere to go. I have no friends, no relatives. With the shelling intensifying, volunteers are finding it hard to deliver food. As Russian and Ukrainian forces fight for control of Rabizhne, there are people down there praying as hell rains down. And the people in that shelter clearly are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's not post, it's ongoing. Uh, they've been down there for weeks. There's no electricity. We brought light with our television cameras. There's no running water. Toilet facilities are abysmal. And they are just traumatized by this constant, constant shelling. We were only there, and I timed it, only 36 minutes. And in that time, we heard at least six or perhaps seven, maybe more, incoming shells. Julia? Thanks to Ben Weedman there. Now, Spanish police are investigating the death of a former Russian gas company executive and members of his family. 
The discovery came just a day after another Russian gas executive and part of his family were found dead in Moscow too. Nick Robertson joins us now. Uh, two Russian oligarchs, both linked to gas giants, triggering questions about whether this was perhaps an organised murder or even a murder-suicide. Nick, what more do we know? Yeah, details are thin. We know that mm. Spanish investigators are looking at the discovery of the body of a man uh, and two women, uh, Sergei Prochesenia and uh, his wife and daughter found in their home in uh, or just near Barcelona. This, uh, again, raises questions, as you say, why did they die? How did they die? Uh, and this came just a day after the discovery in Moscow in their apartment, an apartment that was locked from the inside of um, Vladislav uh, uh, Aveyev. Uh, again, uh, another reasonably senior executive, a Gazprom bank vice president. Russians say that they're investigating his death and that of his wife and daughter who were found with him as a murder-suicide. But it's not unusual at all, and it's happened in full glare of international publicity, that critics of the Kremlin have been murdered overseas, even questionable deaths. A former Russian banker found inside his locked bathroom, apparently having taken his own life. But questions still remain about precisely uh, the toxicology of his blood the, uh, and the nature of his death. So it is, uh, of course, raising questions at the moment um, that there's a potential here that this was somehow the work of the Kremlin. Russian officials are saying that the death of the uh, the, the death of, of Vladislav Aveyev in Moscow is a murder-suicide. So they're clearly uh, trying to say this has nothing to do with a state-sanctioned uh, targeting and killing. But the question the questions are going to remain until investigators uh, come up with their full investigations and the Spanish earnestly engaged in that outside Barcelona right now. I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to raise with you. I mean, what we know from the impact of sanctions, particularly for those Russians living abroad, but also for those living domestically, that life has probably materially altered in the past few weeks as a result of this war. But I think you touched on something that we all question when we see a, a headline like this, which is whether or not there was indeed any criticism of the Kremlin attached to either of these two individuals that perhaps would give us some indication, perhaps... Um, you know, it would not be unreasonable to have uh, Russian officials, former senior executives, uh, used to sort of holding strong views, voicing views amongst friends. We know that the Kremlin at the moment has been calling on people to inform on people who aren't being patriotic. I think what would be really extraordinary is to find two such executives on consecutive days who were willing to murder not only their own wives, apparently, according to the Russian narrative, but also their, their grown daughters. Um, in, in any stretch of anyone's imagination, uh, these uh, coincidences here um, don't add up. And I think that's what troubles anyone who's looking at this at the moment. Uh, and had they criticised the Kremlin? Um, certainly not that we're of, uh, aware of yet, but it, even to have done it 
not publicly, to have just done it within their own social circle, we know carries risks. As I say, the Kremlin has told people to inform if their friends, neighbours, are being unpatriotic. Yes, I think that's the quote of the show. Coincidences that don't add up. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Now, major challenges facing the International Monetary Fund during its meetings in Washington, the war in Europe, calls for more support to help Ukraine rebuild and rising inflation around the world. Richard Quest has been discussing it all with the fund's managing director. The uh, reason is uh, well known. We have uh, a country that invaded a neighbour and uh, there are many uh, that find this uh, so unacceptable that... uh, being in the same room with representatives of this country is difficult. But I would flag that despite of this, the meetings were exceptionally engaged, sober, focused on the big issues we are struggling uh, with. And the big issue on the economic, well, this is Ukraine, but I mean, more support for Ukraine from the fund more willingness to stand by, but what more can you do? For Ukraine, uh, we have already provided $1.4 billion in emergency financing. We are very closely engaged with the uh, uh, authorities. Richard, they are fantastic in the way they keep the country running. And we are working with the World Bank and others to mobilize more resources. We opened up a special account for Ukraine and Canada has already deposited one billion Canadian dollars in it. Of course, what we want to secure for Ukraine is that over the next couple of months, they would have the cash to pay pensions, salaries, retain social services. But can the rest of the world essentially fund Ukraine? The number of four to five billion a month is talked of. Yes. Can the rest of the world do that for the foreseeable future? For a couple of months, yes. I don't see any problem with that. Uh, And don't forget that the country is not entirely under occupation. There are big parts of Ukraine where the economy is reviving. So we expect to see more revenues uh, coming into the budget. This number to go down over time. Plus, Ukraine has now over 4 million people outside of the country, we would see remittances uh, coming in as well. Coming up on the show, closing the funding gap, Ukraine's finance minister gives an urgent appeal to international partners to help keep the Ukrainian economy afloat. He's up next. Welcome back. Ukraine's economy needs $5 billion a month for the next three months to stay afloat. That's according to the country's finance minister. He told me current cash revenue is barely half of what the country needs for its primary budget expenses. Ukraine estimates suggest $120 billion worth of infrastructure damage in just the first month of the war alone. $29 billion worth of housing has been destroyed. Nearly a third of all companies in Ukraine have ground to a halt. That gives you a sense of the devastation of the economy that we're seeing too. Now, Finance Minister Marchenko is in Washington, D.C. for talks, and amid various estimates of what the country actually requires, I asked him to clarify. 
It's a good question because uh, right now we need to uh, explain it for all our meetings in G7, G20 that right now we need a bridge to be normal. So we need uh, time for our army to win this war, so for our people to get uh, necessary support from the government. That's why the right figure is 5 billion US dollars per month. And we just uh, want to safeguard necessary amount for three months, April, May, and June. And then we realize how to fix our balance sheet, our budget, and to prepare a necessary step maybe to increase some tax policy measures or maybe some cuts on our red expenditures because you know it's not so easy made a reduction on your expenses because we already made a six billion reduction of our budget US, US dollar so uh, I, I have seen I have I haven't seen enough room to do the, uh, another another cutting 15 billion dollars for the next three months yeah is that for every month the war continues so if the war continues you'll need more you know, we will prefer to think that we will can win this war uh, as early as possible because it's a mood of our people, it's a uh, behavior of our army. So we will prefer to tell about this very short period of time because it, uh, it, if it uh, will continue longer, we will have to do uh, other steps. And, and how long will they currently committed financing, including the money that the central bank has raised, the war bonds that you've issued. How long will that last you if, if you don't get this support now? How long have you got? You know, we, we already collected through our war bonds uh, around uh, $1 billion per month. Also, our central bank uh, supports us a little bit, but you know, we can't rely on them in a huge conditions because it could create uh, some inflation spiral and we do we want it we, we want to prevent this spiral uh, so for us it's uh, very important to to find enough support from our international partners from IMF from World Bank from different other countries in a way to to flood our budget with uh, foreign aid money to be able to support our currency, to support our economy. The, uh, the International Institute of Finance said, even if that gap that we're talking about is only $3 billion, the amount of external financing you have won't last you beyond the end of this month. I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is what, what the international community need to realize is this is an emergency. It's a yes, financial emergency. Yes, we also uh, reiterated this message uh, again and again. We don't want uh, you to support us for a long period of time. We need this short period of time to receive as much support as possible. It could be some armored vehicles, it could be weapons, but of course the most important fund as a Minister of Finance for us is uh, additional money from abroad which we can use on our needs. Because this money we can just spend on some humanitarian needs for right. social protection for our people. You know, I just uh, tell you one figure. Our revenue now covers only 54% of our primary budget spending, which excluded ser debt service and excluded military. So we excluded military spending and 
our revenue is just not enough to cover all our budget needs. Yeah, it's a stark fact. You've also said you need grants, not loans. And you at the Finance Ministry have shared where the money's coming from. And it's primarily government borrowing and its war bonds. And that is incredibly expensive money to raise. You came to the IMF and said, look, there are other options. There are the unused COVID funds, the special drawing rights. You'd welcome 15-year loans at a 1% interest rate. What concrete proposals have you heard and promises have you heard of money? Because these are good suggestions. Yeah, we proposed uh, several options how different countries can support Ukraine. One option is, uh, you mentioned before IMF uh, administrated account, which can collect uh, some uh, non uh, uh, SDR, which not uh, spread through economy of different countries, which collected on uh, the accounts, which uh, uh, allocated uh, by IMF in 2021. And we eager to ask different countries to just uh, share some part of this special drawing rights to Ukraine, so uh, to get uh, us uh, alive in this very critical moment of time. Mm. Another, mm. another, another option I want to mention as well is a multi-donor trust fund, which was created by World Bank. It's another option, except of uh, special drawing rights. You can provide us some guarantees, some direct loans through this mechanism. So, and we uh, discussed this with our partners with uh, G7 countries, with G20 countries, in a way that countries can choose either to provide us SDR or to provide us guarantee or loans through multi-donor trust funds. Are they open to it? Did they say yes? Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a question of their uh, internal discussions, but what I want to tell you is that um, there are huge expectations around that people support us that they provide us some great messages that we with you, Sergey, so we can find necessary necessary pressure on our politicians to give you support. But again, I, I just want to tell you only uh, for this particular moment of time, I am happy to tell you that uh, United States, United States provide us additional grant finance, 500 million US dollar. It's worth mentioning yesterday by your president. Yeah, President Biden, I know, spoke to, to your yes. president yesterday, Prime Minister yesterday too. Um, do you get the sense that America will continue to provide weapons, to provide money until you win the war? I feel this uh, desire to help Ukraine. And uh, it's not just only words, it's real actions. And I am very grateful that support the United States provide for Ukraine. And uh, I also want to mention Canada. Christian Freeland is a great friend of Ukraine. I also want to mention the United Kingdom, as well as other countries of our partners. But again and again, uh, I want these messages be uh, c- compromised or transferred into real money in our budget, because we really needed it right now. I know. And and the truth is what you're asking for is a fraction of the 40 to 50 billion dollars that Europe has paid to Russia since this invasion began for energy supplies. And at the heart of that is Germany. 
Your government refused to welcome the president of Germany recently to Kyiv. Germany's also struggling to provide heavy weaponry. What's the message to Germany at this moment from the Ukrainian government? You to know, the German I, people? I, I don't want to be a diplomat right now because I'm Minister of Finance. So I met with my German colleague um, and we discussed the possibility to, to additional support from Germany to Ukraine. And you uh, mentioned that Russia received one billion per day from oil supply, just only oil supply to different countries. And we uh, have uh, 60, uh, more than 60 million US dollar per day losses. So if you compare these figures, you can realize how suffering we are. I know. Um, I'm going to ask you to be a a diplomat and, and a representative of your government one more time, because the last time you and I spoke, you said Ukraine will not give up one inch of territory to Russia in order to get peace, in order to end this war. Does that still hold? It still hold. Uh, I can deliver any other message for you because I believe that our society won't to struggle till the end of this war when we, uh, the last meter of our land will be under our control. So it's uh, in all people of our country think, I believe, the same. And if Russia manages to take the east of the country, the Donbass region, and win that, will Ukraine fight to take it back? There will be no surrender. There will be no surrender, and we will continue this war till the end. Okay. Message heard loud and clear. Final question. How's your family doing? I know you've been separated now for even longer. Yes, it's not an easy to be far from your family. I am in Kyiv. My family is in West, Western Ukraine. It's in safe, more safe condition. And uh, moreover, I want to tell you that my parents uh, were in that territory which by occupied by Russia some period of time, maybe 40 days in occupation without uh, a possibility to call them, to ask them how are they. So it's not easy, but everybody in our country is uh, struggling. So I also uh, think that it's a price and uh, which, which we should uh, eager to pay and we are able to achieve this uh, Victory. Okay, coming up. I speak to the wife of detained Kremlin critic Vladimir Karamurza about his arrest, potential new charges, and despite the risks, his ongoing pleas for peace. Stay with us. Welcome back. This morning, Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza is still in custody. After being arrested last week in Russia, the same day he called Putin's government, quote, a regime of murderers during a CNN interview. Karamurza was charged with failing to follow a lawful order from a police official. But yet even from prison, he has continued to speak out against the war. And after 15 days locked up, he's scheduled to be released next week. But he could be facing 10 more years in jail on newly unveiled charges for spreading, quote, false information about Russia's military. 
Joining us now is his wife, Evgenia Karamurza. She's also the project manager of the Free Russia Foundation. Evgenia, good to have you on the show. What can you tell us about these latest charges and, and where your husband is? Good morning, Julia. Good Thank morning. you very much for giving me this opportunity to speak. Um, well, around 4 a.m. today, I received a call from my husband's Russian lawyer, uh, 4 a.m. Eastern time, and saying that uh, my husband had been transferred to the Russian investigative committee and a criminal case against him was being initiated under Article 207.3. A new article introduced uh, after the war already had broken out um, entitled Dissemination of Knownly False Information About the Use of Russian Forces in Ukraine, Rus uh, Russian Armed Forces. Uh, of course, this article uh, was meant to intimidate people, intimidate Russian civil society, scare it into silence about what's happening in Ukraine. And of course, my husband would not do that. He would not be intimidated by something like this. Uh, and um, so since then, um, he was charged under this article and uh, he was transferred to the Moscow Basmane court, where he is now. Uh, he's facing five to ten years in prison for his civic stand, for his um, for his refusal to give in, to give up his fight. And uh, um, well, they're gonna, as we speak. I'm sorry for being a little worried and out of breath no. but they are actually choosing the measure of restraint right now because um right now the court hearing is taking place in moscow where they will choose the measure of restraint against my husband please do not apologize for struggling to speak about this because everybody watching are trying to imagine what you're feeling at this moment and can't to be honest not many people can perhaps even only one can at this moment, and it's Alexei Navalny's wife and family too. He has been honest about the war. He's talked about it as a war, not a special operation. Do you believe that they're going to use this, the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, as an opportunity to, to put him in prison for up to 10 years? Do you think he even has a chance of fighting this? Um. Well, honestly, the Russian Investigative Committee has so much to choose from when it comes to my husband. Mm. My husband has been a very outspoken critic of the Putin regime since, well, basically since since Mr. Putin came to power. And uh, my husband has been advocating for the introduction of personal targeted sanctions for over 10 years now. And he was poisoned twice uh, for his advocacy. And, uh, of course, he refused to call this war a special operation and mm. to be silent about Putin's army's atrocities committed on a daily basis in Ukraine. And, of course, he had to speak out. Um, so, honestly, my husband's entire biography can be um, just, you know, they, they have a lot to pick out from. Um, as for fighting, we will absolutely continue to fight for his release and for the release of all political prisoners in Russia, 
and uh, and against this war in Ukraine, we will continue fighting. And my husband is definitely not alone um, right now, because over 15,000 people have been arrested since the beginning of the atrocities in Ukraine. Um, over 15,000 people all across Russia have been detained, and hundreds of people are currently serving jail sentences, unlawful jail sentences for opposing the war, for saying no to the regime, for saying no, this war is not in our name. So all these people are fighting, and my husband believed he needed to be where people are fighting, this evil regime, and this is why he went back to Russia. He wanted to show that we should not be afraid. Because, well, as Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, just keep going. Keep going. And we will keep going. Evgenia, you have children, you and Vladimir. Have you told them? Have you spoken to them? And how do you explain his decision to go back to Russia to, to face this and not be with them, to say goodnight to them or hug them in the morning? How do you explain that decision to them? Well, their father is a politician and he's a human rights fighter. So um, I know that they're very worried about him. But I think that deep down they're proud of him, as they should be. And uh, we've never tried to hide anything from them. Because it's, uh, well, it's pointless, you know, kids. In today's world, they're so much uh, tax savvier than we can ever hope to be. So um, our 16-year-old will find out everything on her own on social media. So <laughs> I, I'd rather I um, were the one to talk to her. And uh, well, sometime today when they're back to school, I will sit them down and I will have this talk with them about their father not, probably not coming home next week as they hoped. Um, but probably much later. I think um, sometimes the greatest show of love is fighting for their future, a better future. Evgenia, what could Russia Absolutely. be without Putin? What could Russia be? Russia could be a normal democratic country with our own independent system of justice, uh, with which we could be able to prosecute our own scoundrels, with free media and free speech, uh, with people unafraid to speak out their minds, to be against the government, uh, to speak out against the government. A normal democratic country where you wouldn't be afraid to go out in the street with uh, you know, a copy of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Two people were arrested just recently, one in Ufa and one in Moscow, for um, beholding silent actions in the street with a copy of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Uh, my husband doesn't want his children to be afraid to speak out. My husband wants them to be able to go back to Russia whenever they choose and live in a free country.
and not live in fear. You know Vladimir better than anyone else in the world. What do you think he's thinking at this moment? I think, well, he's thinking that, well, we're going to keep going. We will get through this. I'm sure he's thinking that, that we will get through this. And Russia will be free, even if it takes us longer, even if it's more difficult that, than we could ever have imagined. But um, we'll get through it. And our country will be free. Evgenia, if Russian women, Russian families, Russian mothers watched this interview, what would you like them to know about your sacrifice and about your family's sacrifice? It's not just my family's sacrifice. Uh, so many people are suffering across Russia right now. So many families are afraid. And Ukraine. Um, oh, not to mention Ukraine. 11 million people were forced to leave their homes. Over 4 million people were forced to leave their country, fearing for their children's lives. This is unthinkable. So I just... We'll keep going through hell. And we'll get and we'll get out of it eventually. And I hope sooner rather than later. Evgenia, I'm gonna let you go. Our hearts are with you. Our hearts are with Thank your you. children. And we know you'll keep fighting. And we keep our fingers crossed for him and for you. Evgenia Karamurza, no, thank you. Keep fighting. You've said it. The media is a weapon and we, we will and have to keep talking about this. Thank Absolutely. you. Evgenia Karamurza there. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Shanghai's government says its severe COVID-19 lockdown will stay in place until community spread is eliminated. Authorities just launched a new testing campaign with plans to conduct daily tests on millions of people. New infections have slowed a little, but are still around 17,000 cases per day. A French court has issued an international arrest warrant for Carlos Ghosn, the former head of car giant Renault-Nissan. Ghosn was arrested in Japan in 2018 after the company accused him of financial misconduct. He fled to Lebanon before he could be tried. Ghosn denies any wrongdoing. And in the last-minute push for two candidates in France before voters pick their next president on Sunday. Incumbent Emmanuel Macron and far-right challenger Marine Le Pen hold their final rallies today with campaigning to close at midnight. The latest polls suggest Macron has widened his lead over Le Pen to as much as 15 points. CNN's Jim Bitterman joins us now from Paris. Jim, great to have you with us. That's a far more comfortable lead as far as the polls are concerned than it has been right up to the last few days. I guess the question is, will that the result look like this too? 
Well, that's a good question, Julia. We'll know that on Sunday. But I have to say that, in fact, that poll is kind of an outlier. It's an opinion way poll that was published this morning in uh, Les Echo, the financial newspaper here. Uh, it's a, it's the highest spread that uh, I've seen so far. There was another poll out this morning that showed it a little more close, a little closer than that. But uh, Macron's still comfortably ahead. So uh, I think that uh, they must be feeling pretty good in the Macron camp. Uh, going on to Sunday's election. We'll see how that comes out. And as you mentioned, as of midnight tonight, everything stops. The campaigning stops, uh, publicity stops, and uh, you can't even, the candidates can't even change their websites uh, after midnight tonight uh, until the votes are actually announced on Sunday night. Julia? Uh, 2017, they were incredibly close in the first round, and then I think Macron got two to one, didn't he, votes in the end. So it's always quite quirky. Um, with the with the French votes, at least in recent history. Um, Russia obviously featured in that debate that we saw two days ago. Uh, and Macron very much gloves off, criticising Marine Le Pen's ties to Russia. Even Russian dissident Alexei Navalny weighing in on Marine Le Pen. Exactly, exactly, Julia. Uh, Navalny tweeted uh, before that debate the other night uh, that, in fact, uh, if uh, voters are in France have any choice, they should vote for Mr. Macron. And the idea is that uh, Madame Le Pen took this $10 million loan by her own admission from a Russian bank. And Navalny said in this tweet, he said, uh, this is not just any bank. Uh, this is selling influence to Putin. This is a well-known money laundering agency. So uh, he was quite vehement, and it, it was actually quite an unusual intervention by somebody uh, outside of France to intervene in the French politics like that. But uh, it, it was out there. And then that then figured into the debate uh, with Mr. Macron saying that when he talks to Mr. Putin, it's as a head of state. And when uh, Madame Le Pen talks to, her, to Mr. Putin, it's uh, as her banker. Mm, yes. Two very different candidates two definitely different views and yep. visions of, of Europe and of uh, France, of course, too. Jim, we'll see on Sunday. Jim Bitterman in Paris there. Thank you. Yep. Okay, up next, funding secured. Elon Musk says he's lined up the billions he needs for his Twitter takeover bid. That's next. Welcome back. U.S. stock sliding in the first few minutes of trade today. Investors weighing up some stellar corporate earnings against Thursday's hawkish comments from the Fed chair. Jerome Powell told the IMF spring meeting that a larger than expected interest rate rise of half a percent was on the table in May. U.S. Treasury interest rates or yields soared on those comments as stocks sold off. Now, adjusting for inflation, the 10-year U.S. 10-year bond yield turned positive for the first time in two years. Meanwhile, Elon Musk says he's got the money he needs to buy Twitter. The Tesla CEO says he's lined up $46.5 billion to finance the bid. Paula Monica joins us now to discuss. I think we mean funding secured, to use the old quote that then caught tweet that caused all the issues before. It's secured on his assets, though, rather than on the assets of Twitter itself, which is unusual for buyouts. But then that's the, uh, the benefit of being uh, Team Tesla and being Elon Musk himself. Talk us through this potential financing arrangement. Yeah, when you are the world's wealthiest individual running a highly successful uh, electric vehicle company, we saw how strong Tesla earnings were earlier this week. 
that gives, I think, Musk the confidence that he might be able to pull this off. He apparently is willing to use about $21 billion of his own money via Tesla stock. He has a margin loan commitment from Morgan Stanley for another $12.5 billion. That brings you to $33.5 billion. And then Morgan Stanley has debt financing lined up for the remainder. So that's how you get to that $46 billion number that he talked about in the SEC filing. And it's going to be fascinating to see is so far, Twitter has just basically said that they've received the offer and obviously they're going to look at it. But all indications seem to suggest that Twitter is wary of Elon Musk. And unless the price goes higher, they might say no. If you had to ask me, which I assume you're going to, I think they're going to say no, at least initially. You've asked me, so I shall ask you. You think they're going to say no. I was just actually just Googling myself, looking at the Twitter share price to see what the reaction was to. And Twitter shareholders are saying, uh, yeah, negotiation required, I think. And of course, the removal of the poison pill that they injected last week. Exactly. Twitter clearly has shown through that poison pill that they are probably looking for Musk to either raise his price to get a deal done or just walk away because they don't want to potentially deal with the distraction. There are lots of stories out there about Twitter employees, some of them at least, being very wary and nervous about a possible Elon Musk acquisition of the company. But at the end of the day, I think any board that is going to do its fiduciary responsibility, if Musk comes in and says, okay, you got me, we'll do a share an acquisition at a exponentially higher price than the one that he's offered, it's going to be hard for Twitter to say no. And Musk does have a lot of cash at his disposal if he decides to sell even more Tesla shares. Yes. And then the fun really begins because we're not even talking about the implications for Twitter. Very quickly, Paul, because if I'm going to get yelled at. I know I am. Get your popcorn ready, Julia. Uh, oh, yes. And then some. Um, will you have to sell? Tesla shares to do this? I think that he would likely need to sell a little bit more. He's already, uh, you know, pledged to, uh, you know, sell uh, some according to, you know, SEC filings in the past uh, year or so. I think he would probably have to do more unless he's able to get Morgan Stanley to up that debt financing side of the uh, equation, which may be a little difficult now that interest rates are spiking. Mm -hmm. Oh, there you go. My second call to be quiet. Paula Monica, thank you very much. It must be you and I, and it must be Friday. Thank you for that. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at jchatterleyCNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson. It's up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.